Welcome to a Woman's Place. Uh, this is episode 11. Um, and my name is Tina and uh, this is... Sarika, hello. How are we? And today we're going to be talking about... Um, Sarika, do you want to introduce the topic? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about um, women's representation in films. So um, we're going to do a two-part series on this. And this episode is going to be about the early cinema and film industry and how it was surprisingly liberal and feminist and how, unfortunately, um, that changed. So Mm -hmm. um, the the idea of film has was kind of first debuted in Paris in the late 1890s, these two brothers they figured out that by um, kind of changing the camera a little bit, you could um, take a moving picture. And like the first couple of movies, the first movies that were made were really, really short. They were like one to two minutes. I think the first movie that was ever shown was like a movie of, a, of just a train moving, um, like just a train pulling into a station, like to us, very boring. The people, the people, people leaving the factory. Yeah. So, like, to us, really Mm -hmm. boring, but to people back then, obviously amazing. Like, there's someone moving on a screen. Um, And they were kind of kept for things like traveling shows or, like, world's fairs or exhibitions. Um, They were very cumbersome, very difficult to get right, like, really long exposure times and and things like that. Um, And once these two French uh, guys had had figured that out, it became... um, people started obviously like everything else building on that um, technology. So by, we'll say from the 1900s to the 1910s, uh, films became longer and longer until eventually the first feature length film was made, which was actually made by a woman, the first American male or female to make a narrative feature film. It was in 1914 and she was a woman by the name of Lois Weber. And she made a feature film version of The Merchant of Venice. So it was like two, two, over two hours long and had like, you know, proper sets, proper backdrops, etc. So that was kind of a really big, it was a really big deal because it was the first one ever made. So then, um, as we all know, um, the silent um, movies, they were accompanied usually by a, um, a piano. And then the words would appear on the screen afterwards. And... This during this industry, women were actually highly, highly involved. They worked as screenwriters, they worked as directors, producers in cutting rooms, as lighting assistants, and as actresses as well, obviously. So part of this was because film was kind of viewed as a fringe medium. It wasn't viewed as something very serious. It was kind of viewed as like an eccentric hobby. And the people that were involved in it were kind of seemed to be on the edge of art and culture at the time so um but again women were so it would have been like louis brunel right yeah yeah like i don't know a huge amount about the french um not definitely not as much as you would know about the french side of it but i know that in hollywood like Hollywood was chosen originally because it has such a variety, California itself has such a variety of landscapes. So you can be in Mm. the desert, you can be in the mountains, in the snow, you know, um, and it's all very travelable, for want of a better word, to get from one set to another. So Hollywood became the place. But 
people back in the like tens and twenties, they didn't move to Hollywood like they do now to try and like make it or whatever. It was more that um, Hollywood just happened to be the place with all of these um, landscape options and people who wanted to be involved in this kind of art culture moved out there. So obviously um, during this time, there were a lot of women involved and part of that was because the first world war was raging so the men weren't there and another part of it was that uh women were amongst the largest group of moviegoers so we're 51 percent of the population but they made up like 70 percent of moviegoers so it made sense to have women behind the camera and in the screenwriting in the writer's room and all of those places because you're trying to appeal to women so obviously you want to have women Mm -hmm. so just for example there was a woman called dorothy parker um who's she was a writer and her husband was also a writer. She was paid four times as much as he was in the 1910s, which would be really unusual. Like uh, there was a woman called Frances Marion who founded the Screenwriters Guild, which is still going now. And she was the country's highest paid screenwriter. More than a hundred of her scripts were made into films. She became the first woman to win an Oscar for writing. Um, but nobody really knows who she is, you know, because of what we'll explain in a minute. But this, This absence of men and this um, idea that women were consuming most of the media led to um, a lot of freedom for white women during this time. There were some women of colour involved, but unfortunately not as many, um, not as many as as white women. Um, So by the time that the war ended in 1918, men began returning and two things started happening. So number one, they started looking for jobs and women were kind of slowly pushed out of those roles. And then secondly, a lot of women um, had to go back home once their husbands returned from war. They had to go back and be the happy little housewife. Um, Is this after the First World War you're talking about now? Yeah, so it would be like 1919, 1920, all the men started coming back. And a lot of women willingly gave up their jobs, but a lot of women were pressured either by the husband or kind of just by society in general into giving up their jobs. But still, the 1920s were a very um, socially mobile time for white women. It was the first time that kind of having a job before you got married was acceptable Prior to that, you just stayed at home with your parents until you got married, you know, and living on your own with other women was acceptable during this time as well. But many of them had to give up Um, their jobs when they got married. Yeah, that I think that that has been repeated a lot of times, though, but poor, poor women have always worked. So I think that was like a that's a class and not like that is the the common thing that said, but actually poor women have always worked and it's um. It's the upper, like middle class um, women who would have been subjected to to that like rule about staying at home and not working because it would have been seen as like poor and also. Yeah, no, I you know, totally agree being with trained you. For something else. Yeah. yeah, I should have clarified that I meant um, middle and upper class women. But yeah, you're dead right. Um, poor women, working class women have always worked because they didn't have any choice. Um, mm-hmm. And what happened then kind of during those that 10 years from the 1920s to the 1930s I think we all know like the roaring 20s huge amounts of money were being poured into all sorts of businesses um and one of the studios that was founded at the time was Warner Brothers which we all know from uh Disney and and um Bugs Bunny and things like that um it was run by five brothers 
And one of them, Sam, had this idea that uh, they should try and incorporate sound into the movies. So his company mm-hmm. produced the first talkie, as it's called, and it was um, a, a movie called The Jazz Singer, uh, which unfortunately was um, like, featured all sorts of like racial tropes and blackface and terrible stuff like that. But it was wildly... I think I've seen it, yeah. It was wildly popular at the time. And the popularity of this movie made the big investment firms in New York turn around and kind of say, oh, they're making a lot of money over there. We would also Mm. like to make a lot of money. So um, what began to happen was as the investors moved in, the women were pushed out. So Mm. people kind of often ask, like, why? Like, what was it about? Were the women just not doing as good a job as the men? Was it all about the money the men needed? Or what was it? And actually, no, it wasn't. It was... um, as Patricia Dorisio writes in her anthology, Silent Women, it was that women in the cinema at this time questioned and expanded the cultural understanding, understanding of gender. And this is from an anthology called Silent Women, Pioneers of Cinema. And in the same anthology, the director, Melody Bridges, notes that the scripts from this period, particularly those written by women, were much more permissive and liberal than we, as the contemporary viewers here, might imagine. Films featured um, cross-dressing, birth control, abortion, nudity, um, sexual orientation and these were all films that were produced by women so 1930s the 19 the year in the year 1930 a film called morocco was produced which was the first lesbian kiss in cinema in europe at the same time there was the weimar republic in germany so after the world after second world war but before the 1930s Germany had 10 years of this um, society called the Weimar Republic, where things were extremely liberal. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sometimes kind of shocks people because they think to themselves, like, well, 1930s Germany, we had Hitler, like, in fascism and stuff. But actually, prior to that, Germany was a very, very liberal place. Um, There was a movie called Anders Als der Anderen, which means different from the others. And it featured two male musicians who fell in love. So it was a very... um, it was it was a very explorative genre cinema was at the time but as you can imagine once the big investment firms moved in and these films became more and more monetized hollywood was sending these films all over america so no longer was it like the little chinese picture house at the bottom of your road where you'd go to watch you know you and 20 other people might go to watch a, a fringe um a fringe movie now it was mm-hmm. big big cinemas owned by big companies that had 400 500 seats and hollywood became absolutely inundated with complaints about this perceived lewd content of these films and the investors were afraid of what they're always afraid of losing money so they actually wanted to um, police themselves before the government stepped in to police them so mm-hmm. they um, they they made this these rules for themselves. They are called the Motion Picture Production Code, and by um, they were introduced in 1930, but they weren't properly in, they weren't properly enforced until 1934 when they hired a Presbyterian minister called Hayes to become the head of enforcement. And so this code became known as the Hayes Code because he was the guy who actually really enforced it. So I'd say you can take a guess at some of the stuff that got banned. Yeah. So obviously um, 
they they wouldn't even write they wouldn't even write things like you cannot show birth control you cannot show abortion what they wrote was films may only present the correct standards of life in Mm. inverted commas so that ranged from everything from um from gender exploration to uh, LGBTQ plus relationships to uh, divorce, even extreme poverty. You couldn't show anything like that on screen. There was to be no nudity or overt overt portrayals or references to sexual behavior, even between consenting adults. Religion could never be depicted in a mocking manner and crime and immorality could never be portrayed in a positive light. If someone performed a crime or an immoral act, they had to be punished on screen by the end of the film. Essentially, if you did not obey these rules, your film would not be invested in and would not be shown in public cinema. So these rules lasted until 1968, um, but even then you had the censorship boards to get past even after 1968, you still have to get past the censorship boards, which we ourselves had in Ireland. We had a censorship board here um, until oh, very, very, very recently. I think we even still have a censorship board to a certain amount. But just for example, like The Life of Brian was banned in Ireland. You couldn't watch it. There's no cinema was allowed to show it. There were a lot of books that were banned in Ireland under the censorship board as well. But mm. what happened um, kind of because of this, because of this Hayes Code, being introduced in 1934, by the 1940s, the white male's experience had been firmly centered in cinema to the complete exclusion of anybody else. Um, Andy Zizer writes in her book, Feminism and Pop Culture, the characterization of women in postcode films were less brazen, less sexual, and far less powerful. The new female figure in film was one who was somehow imperiled by love, sickness, or circumstance. Um, and it was also during this time that films went transatlantic. So prior to this, American films were consumed in America, British films were consumed in Britain, French films were consumed in France. Um, but what happened was that um, the consistent, the consistent kind of um, exchange of like the best British films may be shown in some American cinemas and the best American films were shown in some British cinemas. What happened was the actors were encouraged to adopt what's called a transatlantic accent. And this is the accent that you hear in films like Casablanca Mm. um, and that you hear in films from the 40s to about the 60s. And it's quite kind of a hoity-toity accent for want of a better word. Um, I don't like it though. I always thought uh, like Americans sounded better like that. Maybe not the English, but the Americans. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. The funny thing about the transatlantic accent is, is that it's a very cultivated accent. So obviously, no mm-hmm. one talks like that naturally. But it's not even a mix of British and American. It's not like you pronounce some words British and some words in an American way. What it actually was was that accent originated in private schools in America which were trying to undo the regional accents and rural accents that their students came with. Because kind of from the 1890s through even to the 1930s, a lot of children were primarily educated at home. So they did the Mm -hmm. basic English, maths, etc. at home and then went to school when they were maybe 8, 9, 10, up to 12 maybe. And when they got there, their accents were fully and firmly part of their personality and part of their their body. And this had to be undone, basically. Elocution. Yes, essentially essentially a form of elocution. Yeah, so 
what happened was it became associated with the upper classes, this transatlantic accent, and therefore actors began to try and emulate it because all of the stories really that were told back then were about wealthy people or middle class mm-hmm. people. You know, there were very few stories told in this time about the poor or the downtrodden unless they were um, kind of background actors, really, that would be about it. So there was this guy called William Tilly, who was a lecturer at Columbia University, and his whole thing was to promote the standardization of American pronunciations, which led to, and still does today in a lot of places, a a real kind of um, class distinction between accents. So it was to kind of distance anybody from outside of that realm, you know? So you'd hear about, say, going people from... um, maybe poorer backgrounds going getting a scholarship in the 1960s or 1970s going to places like Yale or Harvard and being the only person there who talks like they do and having Mm -hmm. people having people kind of stare at them or notice them far more because they spoke with um didn't didn't speak with this transatlantic accent so I just thought that that was that was really interesting that a lot of people think the transatlantic accent was so that audiences could understand, you know, the British could understand the Americans and, and vice versa. But it really wasn't. It was about trying to emulate this upper class way of speaking or what they, they, they thought was this upper class way of speaking. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when the when the Hayes Code came in and when this transatlantic accent came in, what kind of basically happened, as I said, was that the the male the white male's experience became the the essential part of these films. And if you weren't making a film about the white male experience, then it probably wasn't going to get made. And even if it did mm. get made, even if you managed to find investors to fund it, um, you weren't going to get a lot of cinemas to show it, you know, especially not in America or in Britain. Outside of that, um, you might find some small cinemas that were willing to show it, but that would really kind of be, that would really kind of be about it. And what this led to, which we will speak about in our next podcast, is the creation of female tropes. And we're going to talk about this in our next podcast. So um, we're going to talk about our female tropes and we're going to talk about why, why is this important and what this has led to. So that's just our little short little introduction to um, women in cinema um, from the silent era to the 1940s. So, yeah, do you have any questions or anything that I didn't explain well? No, I just think, um, yeah, a, a few things came up when you were talking there, but I um, let them go out of my brain again. I just think, yeah, I, it was just different things that are happening now that are same, same, you know? So it's like, oh, when you were talking, I was like, oh, it's same, same. It's same, same now. Same, same. Um, But yeah, the trope, I think that would be a fun conversation. So we'll see you guys next time when we talk about the female tropes in cinema. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 